Future presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's bow our heads as we start with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can get into this most important subject, the subject of the Antichrist. Father, we pray that you'll bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll draw us close to you. We pray that you will enable us to understand your word, make it clear for us. And Father, we pray once again that you'll surround us with the presence of your holy angels, that you'll come into this room. And Father, that this evening we won't just go out of here educated, but that we will go out of here spiritually blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Bible, the Antichrist is known by a number of different names. And this is not an uncommon thing in the Bible with some of the major characters of the Bible. You see, Jesus has a bunch of different names, doesn't he? We call him Jesus, Emmanuel, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb, etc. And each one of those names of Jesus tells us something different about his character, who he is, his personality, and his work for our salvation. Once again, if you come to Satan, Satan has a bunch of different names as well. Satan is known as Satan. He's known as the accuser. He's known as Belzebub. He's known as Azazel. He's known as Lucifer. And we could probably think of a few different names for Satan as well. You will find the same thing with the Antichrist. In 1 John, he is called the Antichrist. That's the only place that he's called the Antichrist. In Thessalonians is called the man of sin. In Daniel chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In Revelation chapter 13, he's called the beast. And in Revelation chapter 17, the Antichrist is symbol, symbolized by the symbol of a woman holding a golden cup. And here she is in plain sight for all to see. Sometimes the most effective place to hide something is in plain sight. You see, that way nobody really seems to take any notice and they just walk past. Now, when we look at all of these different aspects of the Antichrist, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, who is the woman with the golden cup? That's Revelation chapter 17, where you'll find her symbolized as a woman with a golden cup. And by the way, the reason we know they all symbolize the same entity is because they all have the same identifying characteristics. Now, you won't only find this woman symbolized holding a golden cup. You'll also find her here holding an Egyptian pyramid. And so you find the roots of this religious system go way back to ancient Egypt, as we have been mentioning on a number of different occasions. Not only is she holding an Egyptian pyramid, but here you find her cradling the sun. What was the main god of the ancient mystery religions? It was the sun. And so with the sun in the ancient mystery religions, we find that it is still there, still the same concept today. Here, of course, rather than cradling the sun, this time rays of the sun coming out of her head, and here she is holding a serpent, a snake, a symbol of Lucifer himself. Now, of course, this is a very old symbol, and it takes us way back to the very beginning of religion. Of course, right back at the very beginning, you had Nimrod who formed the first great religion in rebellion against God and originated sun worship. And as we were reading about uh, Tammuz in the book of Ezekiel during question time, 
we find that Nimrod's wife was Semiramis or Ishtar, as she was known, and their son, he was Tammuz. Now, Nimrod associated himself with the sun. He proclaimed himself as the sun god. And of course, the sun was taken, so his wife Ishtar, what was she going to take? Well, the next biggest thing that was out there when you looked out in the night sky was the moon. And so she selected the moon to be her symbol. And because she selected the moon, of course, it worked in well with the fertility rites that they developed Um, particularly the moon having a monthly cycle and a woman having a monthly cycle, it became an appropriate symbol for Ishtar. And so you find many instances and many places where the moon was worshipped as a god, a symbol of the sacred feminine in the ancient world. Here you find the Babylonian one with the signs of the zodiac going around here. The serpent runs up over the top and you have the moon at the centre of this particular stone. Here, of course, you have the moon um, up in this particular corner once again, and you find this symbol of the crescent moon popping up in all kinds of unusual and strange places. Now, the moon has been used in many different forms as a symbol. Here you find the moon associated with the sun. Here you find another symbol of the moon on top of a church spire, and you find more crescent moons popping up all over the place. Here, of course, you find um, the same woman, the same goddess right here under a different name each time, of course, but this time with the moon on top of her head. And there you find it again. And so you find that the, the, the female god is consistently associated with the worship of the moon and the moon being on the crown of her head. Here you find it on uh, one of the medieval popes. Continuing on. What you find here is the symbol of a woman once again standing on the moon. And this time, of course, rather than being, uh, simply changed the name and called it Mary. And so you find that same symbol here. You find Mary on the cross with Jesus Christ. That raises some questions in my mind. Why would Mary be on the, but she's standing there on the moon. And you find this symbol popping up all over the place. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why? When we see the ancient origin of this symbol, why is it still continuing today and what is it revealing to us? Now here we find a slightly different version of the moon symbol. Here you find the moon and within the moon is the symbol of the sun. Now if the sun is masculine and the moon is feminine and you have the sun, the masculine within the moon, the feminine male within female, this is a fertility symbol and a part of the fertility rites. Very, very common symbol to see in the ancient world, the, the sun, the circle of the sun within the moon. And this was one of the ways that they symbolised fertility. Here, of course, you find the Islamic version of the same thing being continued on today. And there you find a Christian version of it. Here you find a Babylonian version. You see the circle of the sun with the moon here on either side. And the same concept being um, continued by the Assyrians and etc. We can go on down through history. Many different places you find the, the moon within the sun, the sun within the moon here, same concept over and over again. And of course, this was a major symbol in ancient Egypt. You go to ancient Egypt, you find this symbol over and over and over again. And this is what God spoke about. One of the main things that God spoke about when he spoke to the children of Israel and specifically warned them, don't worship the sun 
and the moon. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Those who have gone, he says, to serve other gods and worship them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded. He gives some very specific warnings right here. Here we have the same concept and you find the face within the sun, within the moon. Of course, this concept of putting the face within the sun is the face of Nimrod himself. goes back to very ancient times coming all the way down through until our time. And so it brings us to our subject this evening. Who is this mysterious woman? Where does she come from? Why does the Bible speak about her? Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. And I want you to notice the Bible uses some remarkably strong language here in reference to the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 14. And we'll start reading in verse 9. There's a series of messages here. This is the third one. It says this in verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, friends, I want you to stop and think about this passage right here for just a moment. This is the strongest language, the strongest warning that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. There is no other place anywhere in Scripture where the Bible speaks, God speaks about pouring out wrath undiluted. And notice who it is poured out upon. It is poured out upon those who worship the beast. Isn't that so? Now, if God is going to identify for us, sorry, if God is going to give us a warning, don't worship the beast or you will receive wrath without mixture. But I'm not going to tell you who the beast is. I'll let you sit around on Sunday afternoons and theorize about it. What has God accomplished by doing that? That's just a cruel, sick joke, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, then why is it that so few people today know who the Antichrist is? We seem to speculate and we make fools out of ourselves as Christians because we speculate here and we speculate there. and Oh, it might be this and it might be that and it might be the other. We need to go to our Bibles and find out how does the Bible identify the Antichrist? What does the Bible say about that subject? Does that sound fair enough? So let's stay within the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says this evening about the identity of the Antichrist. Before we go too much further, let me share with you a couple of other things. By the way, if you go back and you study some of the great men of the past, we mentioned Sir Isaac Newton the other day, most influential scientist who ever lived. He knew exactly who the Antichrist was. He studied his Bible. He knew who the more the main players were. There's a copy of his book right there that belongs to a friend of mine, an original copy. I'd love to get my hands on that one that he wrote on Daniel and Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. It's the beast that we're speaking about. And in verse th- chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. 
Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever here seen one of those? That's good. I'm pleased. If you had, we would be able to find some help for you. We'd invite some nice people with a nice padded van to come and take you to a nice place where you could have a nice holiday. Clearly here we are dealing with a symbol, isn't that so? Beast that rises up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. All right, looks like a leopard has the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion and the power of a dragon. Now what is the central issue here? Once again, as we work our way down through the passage, the Bible says, in verse 3, I saw one of its heads as it were wounded to death. His deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. They worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. They worshipped the beast saying who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him. Notice what the central issue is, my friends. The central issue here is worship. Verse 8, all that live upon the earth shall worship him. Verse 12, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and forces the earth and those which live therein to worship the first beast. Verse 15, he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and force that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And then, of course, we come to chapter 14. The issue in chapter 14 is all about worship again. The central issue with the beast is the issue of worship. And so we ask ourselves the question, well, what is worship, friends? We could define worship in many, many different ways, but let me show you what worship is not. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of my Father. Did you catch that? Not everyone that says, oh, I'm a Christian, oh, I love the Lord, is going into the kingdom of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have cast out devils. And in your name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Friends, if we use the supernatural alone as our acid test of what is true and what is false, we are setting ourselves up for deception. You see, true worship comes down to this one thing. If you have entirely given yourself to somebody else in worship, you will do what they say. True worship is found in obedience. That's the highest form of worship right there. You know, as we consider the subject of the Antichrist, we find that over and over again, people have theorised about who it might be. And sometimes I think the devil must look at us and say, you know, these guys are pretty dumb. Because every bad guy that comes along gets gets labelled as the Antichrist. Now, if the devil is going to deceive us, how effective is that going to be if the Antichrist is a bad guy? Seriously, that would be too obvious. If we look through history, we find that Stalin has been labelled as the Antichrist. Adolf Hitler was labelled as the Antichrist. Saddam Hussein was labelled as the Antichrist. Osama bin Laden has been labelled as the Antichrist. Gaddafi has been labelled as the Antichrist. 
Barack Obama's been labelled as the Antichrist. A big computer in Belgium got called the Antichrist. Every time we come up with a new one, you know, the new bad guy comes along, oh, he must be the Antichrist, rather than going to our Bibles and finding out what does the Bible say. And then, of course, that person dies and they're gone. It's like, oh, well, we goofed up there. Meanwhile, we all look silly. Friends, the Bible describes the Antichrist as a leopard-like beast. And in describing the Antichrist as a leopard-like beast, the Bible says, all that live upon the earth shall worship him. Global power at the end of time. And the issue is worship. So let's now turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And here we are going to investigate this chapter in detail. Daniel chapter 7 works us through the same sequence of prophecy that you'll find in the other chapters of the book of Daniel. And one of the central parts of Daniel 7 is the little horn. Now, the little horn is another name for the Antichrist. It has the same identifying marks you'll find in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17, uh, 1 John, 2 Thessalonians, etc. So Daniel chapter 7, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. That, you'll find that on page 363. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. He wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven blew upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, different from each other. Now, let's stop there for a moment. We have been introduced immediately to a number of symbols. In fact, we have three symbols right here. We have the symbol of the wind, we have the symbol of the sea, and we have the symbol of beasts. The question is, how are we going to define what these symbols are? Now, once again, we have two ways of being able to define what the symbol actually symbolizes. We can sit here and think and scratch our head really hard and say, well, you know, it looks kind of like this. Come up with a theory. Or we can find out what does the Bible say that that symbol symbolizes? Which one do you want? You want the Bible one? Yeah? What about you guys? Yep, Yep, good. I'm glad there's some people on this side of the room that want the Bible answer as well. You see, if we go with the Bible answer, we don't have to make anything up. I don't have to make anything up in this study right here. So let's start. What does a beast symbolize? We covered it the other night, do you remember? Go over the page, or go a little bit further down to verse 17. Verse 17, these great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So what does a beast symbolize? A king? Ah, someone's on the ball. I heard someone say a kingdom. You might have a modern translation there. Go down to verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom. And so we're going to look at the symbol of beasts, horns and heads. We'll look at horns and heads a little further on. All symbolising kingdoms, empires, nations, etc. Okay, we continue on. The next question is, we have four great beasts and where do they arise from? The sea. Well, let's find out what does the sea symbolise. Hold your finger here. Go to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And notice with me verse 15. He said unto me, it's Revelation 17 verse 15. He said unto me, the waters which you saw 
where the horse sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. When the Bible says they are, it's about to give you a definition, isn't it so? And what are they? The Bible says that the sea or the water is a symbol of people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. All right, one more symbol, and that is the symbol of wind. For this one, we will go to the book of Jeremiah. And by the way, I'm giving you just one verse each on each one of these different symbols. However, what you find in the Bible is once you get a biblical definition, you'll find the same definition being used over and over and over again. We could look at many verses on these passages right here. Jeremiah chapter 25. Page 318, what does the wind symbolise? They're getting quite a bit of this in the United States right now. Page 318, the Bible says in verse 31, a noise shall come even to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will judge all flesh. He will give those that are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. So let's, let's put in a little bit of context what's going on here. This is like the last great battle where God comes down to go to war against the wicked, the evil here on this earth. He judges them and he puts them to death. Well, then notice the language that is used to describe that event. Verse 32, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. God is going to war, and that war is described as a whirlwind. Isn't that so? Once again, what you'll find is wherever you find wind being used symbolically in the Bible, you'll find it symbolizing war. Now, one more symbol that we'll look at very quickly as a review from last night, and that is the symbol of a day. What does a day symbolize? A year. We will review that further on in tonight's Subject. So those are some of the symbols that we need here. Okay, now we can go back to Daniel chapter 7. We can look at those two verses right there and we can see how easy the Bible is to decode. Verse 2, Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds. Wind, a symbol of war. Blew on the great sea, the symbol of peoples, multitudes, nations, kingdoms and tongues. So there is war amongst the nations. And as a result of that war amongst the nations, what does it say in verse 3? Four great beasts or four great kingdoms came to power. You see, once you decode the symbols, the Bible starts to use language that we all understand. There was war amongst the nations. And as a result of that war, you had four big empires that came to power. Now, we didn't have to make anything up there, did we? We simply drew our definitions from Scripture. And that's the only way that you can interpret Scripture. In fact, it's not even interpreting Scripture. It is the Scripture interpreting it for you. All right, now, do these beasts come up simultaneously or consecutively? The answer comes in the first two words of verse 4 where it says, the first. If there is a first, then there will be a second, a third, a fourth, etc. So we know that they're going to come up one after the other. The Bible says the first was like a what? A lion. And what did it have? 
Eagle's wings. Now, let me show you something that we looked at once again last night, a quick review. These are the four prophecies of Daniel, of the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, 9, Daniel 10 through 12. All of those prophecies have exactly the same sequence of nations running through them. Repeat and enlarge. And what you'll find is that the Bible will enlarge on this tonight and give us some more detail. Repeat and enlarge running all the way through. So we need to find out who are these great nations right here. Well, what was the first one? In fact, if we go back here, what was the first one right here? The head of gold? Symbol of Babylon. By the way, here's an interesting thought. Are we familiar with the idea of using animals as symbols of nations today? Yeah. We have two animals that are symbols of our nation. Isn't that so? The kangaroo and the emu. Two animals that can't go backwards, apparently. There you go. All right, so this is, this is a, uh, a familiar concept that God is using right here. And by the way, God describes the first one as being a lion with eagle's wings. If you go to ancient Babylon, the Ishtar Gate, guess what you'll see all over the Ishtar Gate? Great big lions with eagle's wings, the symbol of ancient Babylon. Now, it's interesting here that the Bible says that the lion's heart was taken away and replaced by a man's heart. This nation was once lion-hearted. It was lost in a night of drunken debauchery. Human weakness lost the nation of Babylon. But then who was it that conquered the Babylonian Empire? You know this from the last couple of nights. Yeah. Verse 5, behold another beast, a second like to a bear. And by the way, watch this. It is lopsided. It raised itself up on one side. It had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. They said thus unto it, arise, devour much flesh. So here you come to this particular nation. He is strong on one side, lopsided, weak on the other. The Medo-Persian Empire was a coalition government where the Persians dominated the Medes so much that eventually it became called the Persian Empire. The Bible says he has three ribs in his mouth. What's he been doing? Eating. What's he been eating? Other beasts. What is a beast a symbol of? Nations. When the Persians came to power, they were opposed by three nations. Lydia, Babylon, obviously, and Egypt. Those were the three nations they had to conquer, just as the Bible indicates right here. Then we go on. The Bible brings on another beast. This one's fascinating. After this, I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl or a bird. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Who conquered the Persians? The Greeks. How many heads does this one have? Four heads. What happened to the Greek empire when Alexander the Great died? It split up, it divided, it fell apart initially into four separate nations under four of his generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Well, then the Bible goes on. Which one have we got coming next, by the way? Yeah, Rome. In verse 7, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Sounds rather vicious, doesn't it? 
And of course, it is a good description of an empire that would be three times bigger than any previous empire and last three times longer and would form the model for globalism that we have today. But then it goes on and says something even more interesting. By the way, this one has ten horns coming out of its head. What happened to Imperial Rome? Who was it that conquered Imperial Rome? What was the next great empire that came along? There was none. That's right. It collapsed. It fell apart into, guess how many nations? Ten separate nations. Absolutely. Ten different nations. And here you find them all listed here. The Anglo-Saxons, the Franks, the Alamanni, the Lombards, the Ostrogoths, the Burgundians, the Heruli, the Visigoths, the Suevi, the Vandals. Seven of those nations are the foundational nations of Western Europe. Three of them no longer exist today. They are gone without a trace. The Bible continues on in verse 8. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking Great things. And so here we come to Imperial Rome. Imperial Rome divides into ten separate nations and then you have the rise of the little horn. As we go through the chapter, you will find that the little horn is the beast of Revelation chapter 13. The great harlot of Revelation chapter 17. The Antichrist of 1 John, the man of sin of Second Thessalonians, the king of the north of Daniel 11, we could go on, etc. down through the list. So who is it? We need to start by making a list of all of the identifying characteristics that the Bible gives for the little horn. Does that sound fair enough? All right, so let's make ourselves a list and we'll make a list of 10 separate identifying marks right here. Okay, first of all, we need to find out Where does the little horn arise from? That's going to give us our geographical location for the rise of the little horn. That's rather important in prophecy, wouldn't you say? To know the area of the planet on which it's going to arise from. Two of the most important things that you can do in understanding prophecy is to identify time and place. They're like grid points on a map. Geographical location Time period, you go to that location, see what happened during that time period, you have the interpretation. Okay, so where does it arrive from? Let's read what it says here in verse 8. I considered the horns. Whereabouts are these horns? They're on the head of what? The fourth beast. So they're on the head of the fourth beast. That's Imperial Rome. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them. So where is the little horn arising from? Yeah, Imperial Rome. Simple as that. All right, so he comes up among the ten out of the head of the fourth beast. This gives us our geographical location for the rise of the Antichrist. Then it continues on. It says, He came up among them, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. 
So here's what we know immediately about the time period of the rise of the Antichrist. The time period is that he will come up among the ten. So while Imperial Rome has been divided into ten separate nations, he will arise to power. Now, the date that historians will give you for the collapse of Imperial Rome is 476 AD. By 538 AD, three of the original ten no longer existed. You want to know how that happened? You'll have to be here tomorrow night. So that gives us a time period of between 476 and 538 for the rise of the Antichrist. A lot of people look at me at that particular point and they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought the Antichrist was only an end time thing. Well, hold your finger here and see what the Bible says. Go to 1 John. 1 John, first letter of John. That's down near Revelation. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, Bible says, Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. So he talks about the prophecy of the coming Antichrist. He says it's actually right here already working behind the scenes. Paul says the same thing. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Verse 7, speaking about the man of sin. For the mystery of iniquity, the man of sin does already work. Only he who now hinders will hinder until he is taken out of the way. Both of them make it very, very clear. Antichrist was already there. He was already at work. There was just something that was hiding him, hindering him so you couldn't see him just yet. But he was coming, so beware. So here we have a time frame for the rise of the Antichrist. Let's put another one up here. And this one says that he would uproot three kingdoms. The Bible says he uproots three of those horns in coming to power. Okay, next identifying mark that we're going to look at is that he would speak great words against the Most High. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, the Bible says, Behold, in this, uh, the end of verse 8, Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, if we want to know what the Bible means when it says a mouth speaking great things, hold your finger there. Go to, hold your finger all night in Daniel 7. Go to Revelation 13, the beast. Revelation 13 and verse 5, There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given him to continue 42 months. So to speak great things is to speak blasphemy. Well, we have to ask ourselves the question at this particular point, well, what does it mean to speak blasphemy? Well, the definition of words can change down through history, so let's give ourselves a Bible definition. Does that sound fair enough? Let's go to John chapter 10 and verse 33. Gospel of John this time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 10 and verse 33. We'll get a biblical definition for blasphemy. That's page 434. In verse 30, Jesus makes a statement. He says, I and my Father, that's God, are one. The Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus said, many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone you? The Jews said, 
unto him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, because that you being a man, make yourself God. Notice the Bible gives you a definition for blasphemy right here, where if you claim to be God, the Bible says that is blasphemy. We'll put that up there on the, on the screen. And we'll go back to the other Bible definition, which is found in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2. And we'll start uh, reading in verse 5. Jesus was about to heal a man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto them, this is page 405, Mark 2 verse 5. Um, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Once again, claiming power, prerogatives that belong to God alone is defined as being blasphemy. By the way, let me ask this question. When Jesus forgave that man his sins, was that actually blasphemy? No, absolutely not, because Jesus is God. When he says, I and my Father are one, was that blasphemy? No, because Jesus is one with his Father. Jesus is God and never ceased to be God. But this is a biblical definition for what the word means. Okay, so you'd speak great words against the Most High. Now what we're going to do is we're going to the second part of Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, like Daniel chapter 8, is written in two parts. It begins with a prophecy and then goes to an explanation of the prophecy. The explanation begins in verse... Uh, 15, Uh, we'll go back down to verse uh, 19 where it says he wants to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful, his teeth were of iron, his nails of brass, devoured and broken pieces, stamped the residue with his feet. The ten horns which in his head and of the other which came up and before whom three fell. Even of that horn, notice that that, that Daniel here really wants to know about this little horn. Even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look, his appearance, was more stout than his fellows. Now, in today's language, if we say that somebody is stout, well, we don't really use that word, but we think of somebody who is fat. The biblical, the Hebrew concept right here is strength. And not just strength, arrogant strength. In other words, somebody who is strong and who knows they are strong. Okay, so we can put that one up there. His look was more stout. That symbolizes strength. Well, we go down a little bit further. Let's see what else we can find out. In verse 21, it says this, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. All right, so we can add that to our screen, can't we? Here we have, he persecutes God's people. Now, at this particular point, I want to point out something to you most fascinating. We're going to go through 10 identifying marks right here. All of these here so far, except for one, have been political in nature. This one right here is religious. Now, as we go down through the other side, we're going to find all of these ones right here are religious in nature, except for one which is political. And so we have five that are religious in nature. We have five that are political in nature. What we have here is a very, very different organisation to the other nations around it because this one is a union of religion and politics together. It has a very distinctly religious agenda. And for that reason, the Bible says a little bit further on that it is diverse. 
Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom on the earth. It will be diverse from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Another shall arise after them. He shall be diverse from the first and shall subdue three kings. So here we have our different one. He has a religious agenda. Verse 25 is a key verse because it is full of identifying marks. In verse 25 it says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times and the dividing of times. So let's work our way through this. The Bible first of all says that we have here, he will think to change God's law. God's times and God's laws. Why do I say God's law right there? Let me tell you very simply, if it was his law, he would have changed it. The only law that you can't change is God's law because if you're going to change God's law, you have to go into heaven, you have to take God off his throne and you have to sit there yourself. That's what Satan wanted to do. He tried it and he failed. And so here you have a power that thinks that they can, but they can't really. Okay, so we'll put that one up there. He thinks to change times and laws, plural. Okay, then what does it go on? He shall wear out, the Bible says, the saints of the Most High. He will persecute them. We read that. He will think to change times and laws, and they, that's the saints, shall be given into his hand for how long a period of time? Time times half a time, which is a Hebrew way of saying one year, two years, and half a year. You've got a modern translation, I'll probably say one year, two years, half a year, etc. Okay, so we have one year, two years, and half a year. So therefore, I am going to put up here that one day symbolizes how long? A year. We looked at this the other day, didn't we? Ezekiel chapter 4, 6 is number one, another one in Numbers 14, 34, etc. One day symbolizes one year. How many days are there in a year? How many days are there in a biblical year? Oh, very good. Somebody got it right. The biblical year has exactly 360 days in it, exactly 30 days to a month. Kararite Jews that follow that calendar every so often have a 13-month year to rejig their calendar because it gets out by um, a whole month eventually. Okay, so if you have three and a half years of 360 days in a year, that will bring you to a total of exactly... 1,260 days, if a day symbolizes a year, you have exactly 1,260 what? Years. So persecute God's people for exactly 1,260 years. By the way, we read in Revelation 13, just a moment, that he would persecute for 42 months. Guess how long that is? 42 times 30, 1,260. Same prophecy, same, same entity right here. So the question that then comes up is, how will that come to an end? Revelation chapter 13 gives us an interesting insight that we don't have in Daniel chapter 7. A tenth identifying mark that shows us how this period would come to an end. Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were 
wounded to death. This is some information, some extra information. And his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. The Bible says, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. They worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so here we have a situation where the beast, the little horn, is going to receive a mortal wound. That mortal wound will then be miraculously healed and after that event, the Bible says how much of the world is going to follow the beast? All the world, except for Revelation 13 verse 8 clarifies and says, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to have my name written there, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So here we have our 10th identifying mark, 42 months, 1260 days and years. How will it end? You have a deadly wound followed by a miraculous healing, followed by every single person on the planet being implicated. So we've gone through 10 identifying marks right there. We haven't listed them all. There's a few more. I'm going to save maybe two or three for tomorrow evening. But we have our 10 identifying marks. We have enough information to identify who the Antichrist is. So the next question is this. Who is the Antichrist? Well, guess what? We have run out of time. (laughs) So if you want to know... You come back tomorrow night, and here's what we'll do tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, I'll give you a couple of really obvious ones. I mean, we've got some pretty obvious ones right here. I think that most of you can go home tonight and figure it out. But tomorrow, I'll give you some really obvious ones so you know exactly who it is. But we've got our foundational identifying marks established right here. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 because we need to finish off here. In Daniel chapter 7, I want to show you the end of the prophecy. There is something here that is truly amazing. Daniel chapter 7, how does it all come to an end? Verse 26, the Bible says, The judgment shall sit. They shall take away his dominion to consume it, to destroy it unto the end. I'm going to show you a contrast right here. This is the end of the explanation. You have the Antichrist, then you have the judgment. In the prophecy itself, if you go back, you have the judgment. It starts in verse 9. And there is a key aspect of the judgment. Verse 9, I beheld till thrones were set in place, the Ancient of Days sat, and his garment was white as snow, etc. End of verse 10, the judgment was set and the books were opened. Then it continues on, and in verse 13, the judgment is about to take place, and in verse 13, somebody arrives. I saw in the night visions, and behold, One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Who is it that arrives right here? The judgment is set, the books are open, it is ready to take place and who turns up? Jesus turns up. Why does Jesus turn up? He turns up on behalf of every single one of us right here to plead our case and he has never lost a case that has been entrusted into his hands. Isn't that good news? Praise God. And as a result, what happens in verse 14? And there was given to him, that's Jesus, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. 
The Bible says the kingdom, the dominion, the greatness of the whole kingdom is given to who? Jesus Christ right there in that passage. Isn't that so? I'm going to show you a contrast. It's a really good contrast because of what it teaches. And so what is the kingdom? Everything that is out there. Isn't that so? Yeah? Everything that is out there. Then you have the contrast. We hear it says it's given to Jesus. Notice what you get in the end of the chapter. Verse 27, the kingdom, the dominion, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to who? Who's it given to? The people of the saints of the Most High. That's you and I. Now let's start to put this together. First of all, it says that it's given to Jesus Christ, but then it says it's given to the saints of the Most High. Well, how can that be possible? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? No, not at all. Romans chapter 8 has the answer. Romans chapter 8, and this is a wonderful, wonderful promise right here. Romans chapter 8. The Bible says in verse 16, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified Together, the Bible says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, the word heir means to be a sharer, an inheritor, a possessor. Now, all of this that is out there is given to Jesus Christ. But then he says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to share it with you. Does he need to do that? Seriously, does he need to do that? No, he came to this earth. He gave his life so he could spend eternity with you. Why does he give you the universe as well? Just because he loves you and when you love somebody, you love to give them things. Isn't that how it works? Can he give you a bigger, can he give you anything bigger than that? I mean, seriously, let's think about this for a moment. I wrote down a few stats before I came up here. You know, I find it amazing when you look back through in history. It was only a little over 100 years ago that the first plane ever flew. Within 50 years, we'd broken the speed of sound. That's pretty rapid development, wouldn't you say? But if you want to travel out and see this universe, you're going to have to travel a little bit faster than the speed of sound, aren't you? At a very minimum, you're going to have to travel at the speed of light. 9,881,807,810,620 kilometres in one year. 300,000 kilometres per second. That's how fast you're going to have to travel. If you're even going to get anywhere, that'll still take you four years and four months to reach the nearest star outside of our solar system. Nine years to reach Sirius, 47 years to reach the North Star. And if you want to get to to uh, to Andromeda, another big galaxy out there, that's only going to take you 750,000 years travelling at that speed. Anybody starting to feel a little bit small right now? Yeah? It's a big universe out there, friends. It's amazingly big. And you know, of course, if you're going to explore that, you're going to have to travel faster than the speed of light. At the speed of light, you can circumnavigate our Earth seven times in a second. If you go one million times the speed of light, you can circumnavigate our Earth seven million times in one second and it will still take you more than 100 years to reach the edge of where our land-based telescopes can see. 
I mentioned the other night, they built this Hubble Space Telescope, which doesn't have to look through the atmosphere. They pointed it at a portion of the sky that was entirely empty. They took a photo, and when that photo came back, it was a solid mass like this over here of galaxies stretching out as far as the eye could see. And our lonely little planet down here, and we're just these, it's just a speck of dust in the universe and where these little human beings are living here on this planet. The Bible says that God knows the name of every one of those planets out there that he has created, every one of those stars. And if you go to the book of Psalms, I think David puts it in a good bit of perspective. Psalms chapter 8. Psalms chapter 8. David didn't have the benefit of telescopes that we have. Page 222. Psalms chapter 8 in verse 3, it says, When I consider the heavens, that's the starry heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you even know about him, and the son of man that you visit him? You know, God does not just know about us. God knows every single one of us here so intimately. The Bible says he knows how many hairs there are on the top of your head. Some of you, might, that might not be difficult to count. <laughs> but that's how much he cares for us. That's how intimately he knows us. And this is what the prophecy really points us forward to. It points us to Jesus, who, is going to, who owns the entire universe and is going to share it with you just because he loves you and for no other reason. You know, Jesus came to our earth, our lonely little speck of dust, the ruler and creator of everything that is out there and gave his life for you and I to spend eternity with him. You want to spend eternity with Jesus? Is that what you want to do? Praise God, friends. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we have studied a very serious subject this evening, the subject of the Antichrist. We have begun part one and we are going to continue to identify exactly who the Antichrist is. But Father, the purpose of this prophecy is to point us to you, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the one who gave your life for us. And Father, we direct our minds to you at this time, the promises of your word, the promises of this prophecy that reveal to us your unfathomable love for each one of us. We pray that you'll bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.
That was a medley played by Jamie George entitled Jesus is the sweetest name I know and Jesus is all the world to me.